Welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave, and we have a special guest host today, Brooke Jameson, who many of you probably follow on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Developer advocate extraordinaire is joining me in studio today. Great to be here. And we are talking to the Laura Hyatt. Laura is a solution architect for the AWS Resilience Hub, which I'm excited about. Have her on the show to talk to us all about resiliency. Hey, the cloud's resilient. What does it mean for apps to be resilient? So thank you so much for taking the time, especially after a long reInvent. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me. I feel like this has been a long time coming, so I'm very, very excited. Let's talk about your journey. How did you get started in the cloud or even in, in tech? Yeah, um, so when it came to tech, um, it was interesting, actually. Um, I actually found it kind of randomly. So I, originally, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> so nothing really? To do. <laughs> nothing what kind to of do. doctor? Well, I don't know. I didn't really get that far. Um, I don't... <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, I didn't know. I just thought I wanted to be going to medicine. I thought I'd really enjoy that. I liked biology, chemistry, all that. And then yeah. um, turns out I did pre-med at college and didn't want to do it. And uh, I actually um, read this like this article, this magazine about uh, how to build your own website. Um, it was like for kids sort of thing. And um, so I thought I'd have a play around with that. I thought that'd be cool. And it kind of just got me really interested. And I kind of learned for the first time about like, coding and that's something obviously it was like html css and yeah. i just really enjoyed like building something and seeing then like the results kind of pop up essentially and um it kind of really went from there and I ended up going to university to do uh computer science and really enjoyed that and but i didn't i didn't land in like cloud or anything to be honest like it wasn't obviously it's been around for a long time but it wasn't really a popular sort of mainstream thing when i left university and so I ended up just kind of doing, I mean, my very first job was really unsexy. It was um, doing VBA coding, which is basically the oh code. Oh my goodness, apps. Visual Basic for apps <laughs> in the house. Let's go Microsoft <laughs> Office. It was odd. <laughs> it was I hated doing it so much <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was literally my first job and it was like for oh yeah it's a hot mess and, it's yeah a, I'm, I, I'm nuts it's a wonderful technology my code was a hot mess <laughs> I'm sure mine was as well um and that was literally so I ended up doing that and ended up finding AWS kind of by chance so I joined like this this new company and um they were doing their migration to AWS, like, but it was nothing to do with what I was doing. Um, it just happened to be what the company was doing. And um, <laughs> I remember hearing about the cloud practitioner exam and thought, you know what, I'll go and learn about AWS and take this exam, just basically so I could get brownie points with like my boss and the, sort of the big bosses. It was nothing to do with the project I was working on. And basically, I ended up really loving it. And yeah, that was that was the start of it all, and then decided I wanted to go focus on that, and that was many many years ago. I feel like the cloud practitioner is it's such a great on ramp because for me, as someone that wanted to that was switching in AWS across my time at Amazon, I was like, which cert do I take? And I I wanted to have a cert. <laughs> It's just, this is just my neuroticism. I wanted to have some kind of cert my first day at AWS. Mm -hmm. Just kind of like give me a little, little confidence mm -hmm. boost. That's how I met Andrew Brown, by the way. The, the, uh, it was his yeah. course uh, that I talked. Yeah. Shout out to, to Andrew. 
that's fascinating that you you did the same kind of the same thing and that mm -hmm. you've got a computer science degree you know yeah. a lot we, we have different backgrounds of you know how people get into tech but you went to university and learned all this so you did binary trees and bubble sorts and linked lists and all of that fun yep uh, yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am um, it's interesting like would i choose that degree again i would actually say no um i think for what i do now i don't think yeah. i needed to specific i would obviously do something obviously technology related but I, I think i might do something a little bit different um i don't think and it's interesting actually i'm going off complete tangent but when i speak to sort of students or kids or whoever kind of you know oh, how can i get into usually you know talk about how to get in cloud and database and i'm like you don't need to do computer science you don't and i think right. a lot of people also kind of uh, think oh well, i didn't do computer science at uni like i've missed my shot and i'm like you really haven't like you do yeah. not need to do computer science to do this notion of degrees has changed a bit as well so like in australia you do like a four-year undergrad um and then some people go on to masters but during covid i'm a coupon queen uh, i found a discounted way to do a graduate certificate so that's just like four subjects that gives you it's more than a bachelor's degree less than a master's but you can use those credits towards a master's if you want and it was so heavily discounted yeah. like more than ten thousand dollars off i only paid like a really small amount to do it and those are really good uh, for people that aren't sure first of all if they could do a whole degree um, because you can still roll over the subjects if you wanted to but they're really good if you just want to upskill in certain areas. So I did data engineering that way. You can also do an undergrad certificate, which is the same sort of four subject thing. But if you don't have a degree already, at least in Australia. So if you've never been to university and you wanted to try it out, there's these little sort of ways you can just mm. have a go, get to the end of it, get your certificate and then assess whether or not you are ready to push forward with it. I personally sign on so many things to this government program. That's how it was uh, cheaper. I think I got more people than the actual government did to do oh those courses. But yeah, they're really, there's, I think people maybe are a bit lost with thinking they have to do a full out master's degree or a full out bachelor's in something like this, but it's not the case anymore. Yeah. And just, just a love of learning. I'm, I'm with you, Laura, when you, when you write code and you put something out, especially a website, it's like, you could tell people to go and it's like, you brought that down into the world for everyone mm -hmm. to see, you know, such an amazing feeling. It's kind of like creating art or music almost, you know, it's like you're bringing the divine down into the now and sharing it with people, even though my divine is a little sloppy <laughs> in my code, but it, you know, that, that feeling. So yeah, yeah. let's talk about you, you, you started using AWS, you've got your certificate and now yeah. you're in this solutions yeah. architect role at AWS. So so what does that mean? What's a day in the life as a solutions architect at Amazon? I'm laughing because there's always that thing like, no, two days the same. It's a very cliche <laughs> kind of uh, sentence. But so the way I see it, it's actually a really nice role. And it, interesting, I don't know what it's like anywhere else, but especially in the UK, like sort of during university and school, like I don't feel like a solutions architect is ever mentioned. It was always either be like, you know, software developer or kind of maybe like product management. But I actually think the solutions architect is really nice because it's like sits between almost like business and tech. Um, yeah. So basically my job is supposed to be the technical advisor for our customers. Um, so basically their point of contact for anything to do with AWS when it comes to sort of the technology and helping them build on AWS, solve problems, help them fix bugs advice on obviously designing architecture and understanding what services to use and how they work. And um, so I think it's really nice because I did 
previous to work at AWS, I did a developer role and um, I was very much behind the scenes. I never spoke to a customer. So I guess it would have been our architect that gave us, okay, here's what I needed to go build. And basically I just went and built it in AWS. And that was all kind of ever did, just sat behind a console and just um, and just built. And actually I really love talking to customers and actually talking them through kind of like, well, have you thought about doing this? And often they'll say, oh, we need to, I don't know, go full hog and do all of this. And I'm like, do you actually need this? Maybe you should try this or have you thought about this? Or even if it's just like changing, I've done a different type of database because it'll help save them money or give them better performance. And just, I love like working through things with customers like that. So for me, it's a really interesting role um, because it's a lot more sort of business strategy, but technology as well. So it's great for people who are very technical, but also like, talking and looking at strategy and that sort of thing as well. So I think it's a really great sort of nice hybrid role. Yeah, definitely. I talk to lots of students um, when I guest lecture at university and I always tell them about solution architect roles because I feel like people don't know enough about it to sell it. I always explain it as like a customer can do a lot of things, but what should they do, I guess, because there's so many different ways, especially in AWS, you can do different things. Are there any specific personality traits that you think makes someone a good solution architect? So maybe if someone's listening and they hear this in themselves, they can think about maybe doing this. Ooh, um, good question. So I think I think actually really like listening to what the customer, well, I was going to say listening to what the customer wants um, because I suppose there's always that kind of thing of where you might think, oh, you should use this, but actually does it work for the customer's own sort of business or scenario but also at the same time listen to what the customer wants but also maybe then sort of flipping that and saying well, actually do you need this because often customers say they want something and it doesn't actually work for them so there is a lot of you have to try and interpret and read between the lines and I think there's a lot of like digging around in that and it's not just quite a straightforward okay someone said this let's go do this I'm not quite sure what that skill set's called but and then also um I would say a lot of context switching is important although actually talking about my role now is a little bit easier in the sense of so I used to be an account essay um and that meant that I looked after a certain um section of customers so it looked after education customers so universities ed techs researchers and they could be for any AWS service and any architecture type that they wanted which is quite difficult whereas now I look after any customer across the world in any industry but only on one specific service so I always do this like inverted triangle but I do think context switching and being able to kind of uh, balance that is really important as well. Yeah, definitely. And so you specialize in application resiliency now. Is there maybe a certain trigger that happens with the customer when they realize that they need to do something in this area? So when would they realize they had a problem that needed to be fixed with resiliency? So um, it's interesting because I actually say that you should think about resilience way before that trigger point. Um, and often it's the trigger point then leads customers to uh, come to us. But I think, and I get it, like, I think it's a very interesting topic, um, but being completely honest, it is not at the top of everyone's agenda. Um, you know, you've kind of got getting stuff into production is usually kind of the, the top of the list. Security, you know, security is obviously very, very important. Uh, cost savings tends to be nice. And to be honest, then resilience kind of gets really kind of left down here at the bottom. And I, kinda, I get it. It's not... Um, 
it's not the sexiest of topics, um, but it is something that you should care about um, because you'll definitely care when something does happen. And that is, I would say, a lot of the the problem is that people will come to us after an event, after disruptions happened, or like, you know, my really important application, my website's gone down. But actually, it's easier to build in resilience before something occurs. And obviously, it's a lot less damaging. Um, so yes, to answer your question, usually it's when an outage has happened, they'll come. But I would say it is very, it's really important to try and shift that mindset to be like, okay, let's think about resilience before something happens. Yeah, definitely. Is there is there a way that you've found to explain resiliency to clients in a way that makes them care about it? So yeah, it's interesting, actually. So um, maybe actually we'll start kind of explain a little bit uh, what resilience actually is, because I think if we yeah. look at like the well-architected uh, review, which is obviously and an the well-architected framework is really, really obviously important, but that has the reliability pillar. And so I think some people then think resilience is just an interchangeable word, but they are technically different, different meanings. So reliability is when your when your workload sort of performs its intended function um, correctly and when you expect it to and consistently. Um, whereas resilience is actually the ability for your workload to withstand a either full outage or a disruption, um, whether that's kind of the whole application or certain components. And I think it's it's really, really important to kind of think about that resilience because, um, and it doesn't get as much attention than reliability does, but actually, um, and I think I can't remember the exact phrase, um, but Werner Vogels, obviously our CTO said, um, you know, uh, I can't remember, it's something about, um, you know, failure, you know, failures happen all of the time, something like that. And basically, something will happen eventually. And so it's really, really important to actually design applications and systems, knowing or thinking that something will fail, because then you start to architect differently. And actually, what I say to customers is that, um, so, okay, so also we talk about sort of AWS, you know, like SLA, you might see for like S3, it's kind of, you know, availability. And I always say to them, think about uh, an availability of uh, 99.99%. So that sounds amazing availability, right? But actually, um, that equates to about, I think it's technically 52 minutes. It's about an hour of downtime a year. Um, but what if, say, you are a retailer and uh, your application, your website goes down uh, during Black Friday for an hour? That's obviously going to have huge, huge consequences um, for your business. You could lose thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, you know, if you're like an Amazon or someone like that. And so that's why I was trying to tell customers that it's really important to think about resilience before an event occurs, because that 99.99% sort of availability SLA equals about an hour of downtime. So you want to try and do something to either prevent that or recover as quickly as possible from that. So um, you mitigate the kind of uh, knock on effect of that as less as possible. So um, that's how I try and sell it to, to customers that why it's really, really important. Yeah, definitely. I used to work for an AWS partner um, and I was selling to lots of C-suites and boards and things like that. And I think that's a really good ex way of explaining that at an executive level, um, because even if they don't understand the technology itself, they need to understand the implications of mm -hmm. that technology. And it's really important to be able to communicate the tech in a way that 
they understand. So if that's you're talking to the CFO and you're saying, do you want to not have an hour of sales on Black Friday? Exactly. Um, or any other things that can go, even for your like brand loyalty and awareness and things like that. There's so many flow on effects of this. So it's really mm-hmm. important to, I think lots of developers get frustrated when they can't get budget and buy-in for the sensible projects that they want to do sometimes. So it's a really good tip to be able to explain that in a way that makes sense to the person that you're explaining it Mm -hmm. to. Definitely. So AWS Resilience Hub, what is it and how does it help with all of this? Yeah. So uh, I feel like, you know, we've been out now for a year. It was our first birthday, uh, just before um, reInvent, actually. Um, But I feel like we've kind of flown. Happy birthday, Resilience Hub. We actually had a party. Um, Did you really? Tell me about this. Now I want to know. Did you have party hats? We did. And we had cake and there was like a banner. We played a game as well. We did like a sort of team quiz um, all about Resilience Hub and the team. And Kevin, my dog, did feature in it. And, um, <laughs> yes, so, we need to, for the audience, we need to talk about Kevin for a little bit. She, and I think the audience may know because of the popularity of Dogecoin and everything else, uh, that you have a Shibu Inu. I do. Yeah. He is the love of my life. <laughs> no, he's absolutely amazing. I, I was going to say I'd recommend having a Shiba for anyone, but I'm not sure I would actually. They are, they are, um, they're a handful, but they are worth it. They are amazing. How, how old is Kevin now? He'll be two in January 20th. So, oh my, so he's older than Resilience Hub. He is, yes. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure he's think... very resilient, though. He like cries at like, well, he'll like scream at everything. He's very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, this is what I was going to ask about. Does he have a lot of downtime? How do you manage that? <laughs> <laughs> not very well. <laughs> I've not put into practice my own teachings. Um, <laughs> he's very dramatic. He really is. Um, but I love him. So I so Resilience Hub celebrates mm. uh, one year. I will put the URL uh, in in for, for folks. So how can people get started with it? And what is inside this yeah. Resilience Hub? So maybe I'll explain a little bit first. So when you're kind of, uh, so we just talked about sort of resilience and why it's important. But then how do you actually go about being resilient? And I always kind of say to um, to customers and everyone that resilience means different things to different people, right? So um, depending on what your business are, what your objectives are, there is no kind of like one stop, you're resilient, tick in the box kind of thing. Right. Um, so for example, if you know, you're a big retailer, um, resilience is going to mean something completely different than my website that shows I don't know, the local takeaway menu, like it's going to be very different. And um, it's always so the way that you calculate uh, resilience is uh, via the metrics of RTO and RPO. So RTO, new acronyms. Yeah, I know so many with AWS. Um, RTO is recovery time objective. And that is the um, amount of time it takes for your either your application or the individual component to uh, recover from a disruption. So come back to sort of normal uh, operations. Um, And then RPO is recovery point objective. So the amount of data that you are essentially comfortable with losing during an outage. Um, and so you obviously set these times and you can obviously do it down to the second or it could be hours, days, depending on what your application does. And also kind of uh, the trade-offs between different things, because, you know, you might say, well, why don't I just put zero, zero for both RTO and RPO? But that's obviously going to cost 
a lot of money because uh, if yeah. you want a zero zero you're probably gonna have to do some kind of like active active um architecture which is obviously going to cost double you know if not more um amount of money so it's always kind of trade-off usually between costs but also performance and so that's going to depend on what your rto rpo is and that's why also slightly off on a tangent but why i always say that resilience isn't just a technology problem and discussion it's also a business problem as well so you kind of need to work collaboratively so we all need to kind of work together and talk to each other um but uh what resilience hub does is actually does the calculation for you of your architecture for your current rto and rpo because if you have to think about it as developers architects we um you know understand okay we need to have backups and um multi-az and all this good stuff but actually calculating RTO and RPO is really, really difficult. Like, especially with AWS, you've got 200 plus different services and many, many more now because of reInvent. And um, trying to work out, okay, well, how long does it take for my EC2 to recover or my EBS volume to rehydrate? And how do you actually calculate that? And so Resilience Club does it for you, essentially. And so what you do is you give it your application on AWS, and you can do that via CloudFormation, Terraform, or if you're more ClickOps, you can do resource groups or the app registry. And then you put in your resilience policy, so your RTO and RPO goals, and you set it for different types of disruptions because there are different types. It's not just like disruptions. You've got uh, an application disruption, an infrastructure disruption, an AZ disruption, and then also optionally, if you're kind of want to do a regional disruption, you could also right. um, do like resilient architectures for that. And then basically, as so you put in, okay, if I want, you know, one day RTO, whatever, one day RPO, we'll just say, uh, uh, that's quite long, but we'll just say that. And then you run uh, Resilience Hub, the assessment, and it's going to calculate whether you're, uh, based on your current architecture, you're going to meet your RTO and RPO goals. And if not, we then tell you how to fix it. So how to re-architect to meet or get as close to your uh, RTO and RPO objectives. Because you might not always be able to get, if you put zero, zero, let's be honest, um, with a lot of um, services, like actual, you know, you could get a few seconds, but zero, zero is like very, very difficult. So um, you might, well, you know, you might, might tell you how to architect to get as low as possible um and then we also kind of tie in with lots of other things like we'll tell you um you should have certain card watch alarms because prevention and alerting is also really important not just kind of the actual kind of configuration and, right the uh, threshold we, up until the point that something's actually going to break and exactly it's, am i right in thinking when you're saying architecture so i'm thinking of it as an app so my modern app across all of this, and I have many different services. So the Resilience Hub is actually looking at it holistically. So I'm looking at these RTOs, RPOs across everything. So for example, I have a website and now it's running, you know, 10 milliseconds slower or something like that. And it's looking across all of those things. It's looking at the AWS infrastructure. So those are the services that your application is using to run. Um, so we're monitoring that. Um, so we're basically calculating RTO, RPO for like EC2, RDS, Lambda, all that kind of all that good stuff. So it's the AWS um, infrastructure that we're that we're looking at. And do companies do a lot of companies have like SLAs or baseline numbers on this, or are they coming to you saying, "I don't know what should it what should it be for e- EC2"? Um, it's 
it varies. A lot of, I would say, larger like enterprise customers yet have RTO, RPO defined because especially, um, I'd say, industries that have like regulatory requirements, they, they have to do that for sort of compliance reasons. So financial institutions, a lot of public sector, government, but then a lot of smaller companies and that aren't regulated in the same way don't. It was interesting, actually, I ran... Um, a uh, architectural resilience day um, here in London uh, last nice. week. Nice, and uh, yeah, it was really good. Like, I love. Wait, wait, last week, like the week after reinvent. <laughs> yeah, can I have yep. some of what you are taking because that is some awesome energy. <laughs> I levels. really, I loved doing it, but I re- I regretted it. Cause I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning because I don't live oh, in London. Um, so I had to get up at five in the morning to get to the office to like set it all up before customers yeah. arrive in. So yeah, I would definitely at the end of it, I was like, why did I, why did I organize it like straight after reinvent? Um, but basically I, I did this and I asked the audience, I was like, and this was all sort of you know, various um, companies, customers from various different industries. And I said, who here has their RTO, RPO for their, you know, important applications defined? And I think there was like, two out of the room of like 50 people so actually it isn't always that common and so yes that is um as much as uh i can't tell you what your rto and rpo should be um i can definitely like as much as my job is obviously as sort of solutions architect the technical side i also like sort of discussing also the sort of business strategy side of things as well and actually resilience hub does give you um some templated suggestion policies as well okay so um if you don't know where to begin um you can choose rather than you can put in your own down to the second um but we do give templated policies as well based on like criticality of applications so whether it's kind of like a you know global it system or kind of non-critical application we do give suggestions help kind of get started yeah definitely if anyone's listening to this from new york city um, a sneak peek is that I believe there's a resiliency day coming in mm. Q1 next year because I'm volunteering for that. Oh, um, nice. I will put the link in the show notes, but if it's not ready as a link, uh, follow me on Twitter and I'll definitely be posting a lot about it there. Laura, can you tell us a little bit more about what actually happens at that resiliency day if there's anyone mm. that maybe is interested in getting started? Yeah, so it isn't just Resilience Hub. Obviously, I do the section on Resilience Hub, but um, essentially it's like a whole day kind of going from beginning to end of kind of a resilience journey and again that whole like why is important because a lot of customers it isn't the top of their agenda so we kind of dive into kind of what resilience is um why it's important and how it differs for the cloud than it does on-prem and why it might be the sort of the strategies might be different then we kind of look at the different services that you could use on AWS, so um, like how you can use trusted advisor chaos engineering um, which is something else that I really really sort of love i think is really important and we do like labs on that so there's also hands-on um labs like with my resilience hub um i talk for a little bit but then i think to really understand it like let's get hands-on so um, we go through lab and, and using it and and um sort of building an application that isn't resilient using then the service to kind of get the recommendations and then sort of um re-architect it um, kind of go through different sort of DR strategies. Um, and also, um, uh, like at the end, there's a really great section about sort of um, correction of error kind of uh, methodology and how you can kind of like learn from everything. And it's all like a cyclical thing, like um, you yeah. know, you've had 
an event or an outage? What did you learn from it? And how can you kind of improve your application? So next time something happens, it won't be as impactful. Um, Yeah, so I think it's a really great day. I think for me, hosting these days is really important because then customers get to ask questions as well because a lot of time you might be I don't know doing training or anything and if you're behind a screen it's always kind of the same thing with any kind of training they're like oh I don't really understand this and it's totally it's totally fine not to understand it like AWS and cloud and everything is very complicated um so I think it's really great it just gives an opportunity for customers to kind of like I don't, I'm putting my hand up, I know you would say, but like, you know, I don't understand what does this actually mean? Or even like, what does this mean for my business? Or I've got this scenario, what would you recommend? So I try and make it like as interactive as possible. Um, And I'm actually like, I do see from a kind of like internal perspective, I do actually see it being um, really worthwhile. So um, obviously I can only speak for Resilience Hub itself but I get like a daily report because I work specifically for the service team I actually sit within like uh, engineering and everything even though I'm a solutions architect I do sit within the service team and um, I get a daily report of obviously our usage so the amount of customers using um, resilience hub and kind of all the metrics and everything and so and then I can see like obviously a report of who, what customers are using it and I, I generally have seen like an uptick of people and the people attended it started using it so oh, um, nice. obviously i think it is like people obviously have found it useful and obviously taken away something because then i've actually seen them gone away and do something so i think that's always rewarding as well um if there's anyone that can't get to one of the resiliency days do you have any tips on how they can get started learning about this field yeah i mean um so there's loads of we actually have a um we actually have a skill builder um and it's one of the free skill builder um uh, labs mm-hmm. training so um, I mean, we could put the link into that. Yeah, so we just yeah. launched that. Um, so I helped write some of the content for that. So that's on our Skill Builder page. So, um, and that's a free one, so we can do that. So I think that's a really great place to kind of start. We also have a workshop lab, uh, which I can put in the notes as well. Um, because again, I think while sort of doing the Skill Builder training, kind of getting a kind of overview of what it is, is useful. I always think to really try and understand something, like get hands-on, like I, I think there's nothing better than doing that. And then uh, also, I guess also, like if you and your business want help, contact me if you want. And literally, that's like what my job is. I work with any customer across the globe. I am the global solutions architect. So um, if you literally want help for your business using it, literally drop me, drop me a line. Fantastic. How can they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, if you contact me um, either on Twitter or LinkedIn, um, and we'll put those in the uh, show notes as well, drop me a direct message and I'm more than happy to then arrange, uh, arrange a meeting. Fantastic. It's so good to hear from you. Um, I've learned a lot about resiliency today. I will roast myself because in I filmed a video with uh, my colleague Seth Elliott, who's mm. really much more knowledgeable about resiliency than me. And I called it reliability because my brain uh, can't get words straight <laughs> if they have the same starting point. And only one person on TikTok called me out in the comments for this because I film everything in one take. Oh, and I didn't really? want to redo the whole video <laughs> just because of one mistake. And I just left it in to see if anyone would notice. And there's only one person who picked up on it. So I'll take oh. that as a win at this point. <laughs> but this is the thing, though. I think people do think they are the same thing. And obviously, it's all kind of related but also because our well-architected framework is the reliability pillar um, and resilience is a part of reliability. I do, I, I totally understand. But yeah, I think resilience personally is, well, I don't, they're all equally as important, but I would say is 
cr really crucial to understand because it's about what happens when something fails, not just trying to make it stay up all the time because it's not like something is going to fail. So it's like, yeah. what do you do and how do you handle it um, when it does fail? And I think that, to be honest, I find that more exciting. <laughs> so Yeah, <laughs> I love that. It's, uh, it's what's that? Do they, they, they have these commercials, I think, in Europe too. There's an insurance company and there's, uh, he plays a character of mayhem. So it's literally, he's mayhem. And so like in every commercial, it's like, he's causing chaos and every, and he's just laughing and it's man and that is literally what this is about handling chaos oh. right when i think of resiliency it's handling chaos it's handling mm -hmm. loki right and, <laughs> and you don't want loki messing around with your 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 modern app applications so i really oh, i really hope that i was going to say like if um oh we should have called uh fis so fault injection simulator we should have called it ADRS loki that would have been yeah that would have been so cool and you could have like the two horns coming out like on the on the helm on the on the lab and everything well you can do a laser etching i think we should uh, with raise... AW... the aws logo folks might have something to say yeah. about that but it well, would be wicked yeah. so... i was gonna say i think we should raise a request to get fis changed to loki <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So what's come, like what's got you excited? What's next for this? So you just hit the year anniversary. What's next mm. for the AWS Resilience Hub and what's got you excited for the the future? It doesn't have it doesn't even have to be AWS. It could be Kevin turning 3. <laughs> um <laughs> Always excited by Kevin. Um so I think for Resilience Hub what I'm so it's interesting. I had a uh, meeting with my manager. What day were we even on today? Tuesday. Uh, yesterday. And uh, we were kind of talking about like for next year and stuff. And it is yeah. a big thing is trying to get the service out there. Um, and hopefully that's kind of what I've been trying to do when I, so obviously like um, I joined this particular role in April. So I've only been in it, I don't know how long that is, six, nine months. But a big part of it is Obviously, I'm a solutions architect, but also I'm trying to get the name out there because it has kind of flown under the radar a little bit. Um, it needs some, it needs some good PR, and um, and so for me, like I've kind of got this whole agenda that I've been talking about. So the resilience days, so the one of, I'm not doing the New York one, but all my colleagues is um, just because he's in Boston, so a lot closer, trying to be more sustainable. But obviously, we're trying to plan some more because the one in London was really successful. So we have one, another one in London uh, in April because we had a huge wait list. And, um, oh, wow. and so we're going to do some more around Europe and other places as well. I'm also trying to get to the summits. Um, because again, uh, so I did reinvent uh, which was amazing, tiring, but amazing. Um, and again, like really great feedback on Resilience Hub and resiliency in general, like my talks weren't specific on Resilience Hub. Um, they were obviously featured in it, but it was more about general kind of uh, architectural resilience because I think obviously that's crucial and Resilience Hub is a great product and service to help you, but it's a wider sort of topic. Um, so just kind of, I guess, education, getting people involved because I can't be a solutions architect if people don't want to talk about resilience. So I think that's kind of the pre-step and that's why I'm kind of taking that role on is because I need to get people actually caring about resilience because then yeah. I can do this solutions architect role. Um, so that's kind of what's coming up for next, I suppose, for resiliency wise. But I guess like new service wise, um, and this is probably no surprise because I think everybody's saying exactly the same, but the app composer, I think for yeah. me is, yeah, it's I've seen it all over my Twitter feed and everyone's saying it, but I think, oh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's where um, you can drag and drop components for sort of designing serverless applications. And the reason why I think it's 
for me is most exciting and why I think actually it's really important. And it kind of goes back to what I was kind of talking about right at the beginning. Oh, I love that great sort of feedback loop. Um, what I was talking <laughs> about at the beginning was, um, so the way when I started, when I first kind of got into tech, was uh, I said using this this website and I read about it in a magazine. And it was called Matt Mice. It was very weird, but basically it was a kind of like a drag and drop kind of bit like almost, I want to say like PowerPoint to create your website. And it would obviously yeah. uh, in the background generate the HTML and the CSS and everything. But for the user, you kind of just dragged and dropped and it created a website. And then obviously then I wanted to dive into it further and I looked into the code and then moved on from that. But for me, that was a really great place to start learning and using that visual kind of uh, like representation to kind of understand, okay, if I do this is how, and I would then look at that visual representation, then look at the code behind it and go, okay, absolutely, moving this or changing the color did this. And so actually I think App Composer has the potential to um, be a really great learning tool. And actually I think anything that makes either just general life easier is always a win but also i think anything that lowers the barrier to entry and gets more people building is a positive thing and so i think um you know obviously i haven't uh sort of had a chance to kind of play around with it properly yet but i think from everything i'm kind of reading it has a really great potential kind of as a as a great sort of learning tool as well so i'm really excited about that I yeah. agree. There was a, when I was doing, so it kind of got a bad rap, but there was this tool called Microsoft front page. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You remember that? And, <laughs> yeah. it, and that is how I would learn too is, and sometimes the CSS and the stuff it would generate, you would go back and be like, what are you doing? buddy?" Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, but you could go in and you could tweak it. And there was also one from uh, back then it was Macromedia, which got bought by Adobe called Dreamweaver. Mm -hmm, yeah. And Dreamweaver was the first time that I actually learned CSS, but it was through the visual. And there's something about, it's almost like painting on a canvas. When you have that visual, it's not in the abstract where code is very abstract, but our brains, you know, seeing is the biggest sense. It takes mm -hmm. control almost all our conscious, which is why a lot of times when you meditate, people will close their eyes because you're shutting down the visual. Mm. But having the visual when you learn and then being able to see, oh, this is the code. I completely uh, agree with you. I, yeah, I think it's exciting. Yeah. I think we need, I'm a, and maybe this is just because I'm not that great of a coder, but having more low code, no code, visual tools as a way to do a lot of that. And then uh, we also have had Code Whisperer, uh, mm. some episodes on here, having that kind of, having a, a machine, an AI that's helping me write that better code at the same time with the visual is super powerful. Yeah. 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 I can't be the only one that learned to code making MySpace themes. And <laughs> Oh wow. Do tell. That's amazing. To MySpace themes. Yeah, you can you could make like cute curses and stuff and like different themes and colours and things on your profile. Um and the people who would bully me would bully me less if I helped them with their MySpace. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Look, which isn't like it got the job done look where I am now but uh yeah no I think this is it's one of those things that like when you are learning if you have sort of the reassurance from the visual guide of like you're doing the right thing you're on the right track is something that a lot of back-end code misses out even when they're trying to be really interactive with tutorials and things so just mm -hmm. having that reassurance that what you're doing is in fact what you think you're doing um, is super helpful when you're learning um, and it's often the little boost you need to just like mm -hmm. keep going I agree I agree completely Amazing. Well, I super appreciate 
both of your time. This was great. I learned a lot. Where can folks find you on the Twitters and the LinkedIn? I'll make sure I put in the show notes, but just if somebody's listening right now. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, please do um, come say hi on Twitter. I am at Laura J. Hyatt, and that's H-Y-A-T-T, like the hotel. Sadly, no connection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, LinkedIn, if you just search Laura Hyatt and probably Adabess after my name, and I'll come up there. So yeah, please do come say hi. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. This was awesome. Oh, it's been brilliant. I love doing this. Thank you so much. Yes.